Acts chapter 20. So for the next couple chapters, I want you to just kind of think through and remember this idea. And it's how many people Paul interacts with. He's constantly with people, visiting people, finding people, discovering things. He's just, he is an invested man in people. Are you invested in people? Because ultimately, when your trip wraps up, that's all that's gonna matter. How did I invest in people? You ever felt lonely? You ever think to yourself, man, I want more friends? Or I want better friendships? If you have, you're not dysfunctional, you're actually healthy. Because that's humans, right? You're not a tree, you're a human. You're not a machine, you're a human. And God created you ultimately for relationships. It goes all the way back to the garden. This is not a sin thing. This is Adam in the garden, perfection, perfect place, perfect DNA, but he's all by himself. And God, for the first time says, it's not good. You need a buddy. And it's been that way ever since. Invest in people. However, the problem with people is people. They're the problem, aren't they? So I was reminded of this on Thursday. Uh, Wednesday night, I brought Myron, my four-year-old, to church. And on the way here, he just said, Dad, you've never gone to swim lessons with me. I'm like, ooh, okay. I said, so do you want me to go to your swim lessons? Because the Thursday, last Thursday was his last day. I said, well, do you want me to go to swim lessons with you tomorrow? No, I don't care. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you are good. Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> you already kind of blew it, so it doesn't really matter now. I don't think you ever make it up to me in eternity, but you know. So I said, okay, fine, I'll take you tomorrow. So I took him to swim lessons and we go to the caveman pool and check him in. He gets in his class. And there's like this, if you've been there, there's the bleachers and there's a little bit of concrete then there's a fence and there's a little bit of concrete and then there's the two pools. So I just go back and I'm sitting on the bleacher up there and there's about 20 adults in there, just parents or grandparents or whatever, watching the kids do their swim lessons. And then in front of the fence are like these chairs and this, this grandpa had taken a seat in this chair and maybe four or five chairs away on a chase lounge. Grandma had taken, well, a nap on a chase lounge. <laughs> it was noon, so she was getting tired, right? So we're just there enjoying this. And then a grandchild came up to grandpa and the grandchild, just a 10-year-old, full of life girl with a voice that carries. Like she should go into broadcasting, she does not need a mic. She had that kind of voice. And she's talking to her grandpa, everyone's hearing the conversation. And grandpa laughed at something and she goes, grandpa, your teeth are yellow. <laughs> everyone's like, oh, okay. Why are your teeth so yellow, Grandpa? Look how yellow your teeth are. What are you doing, Grandpa? Your teeth are so yellow. They're yellow, 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 yellow. <laughs> right? It's just hilarious. And then Grandma, who's like 10 feet away, Grandma, have you seen Grandpa's teeth? They are so yellow. 
And then you can just see the guy just like, and he's kind of a nice dressed gentleman, you know, just like, he doesn't even know what to do. He's just sitting there going, oh my goodness. You know, his ears are turning red. I can see his ears. They were red. I'm like, oh, you're poor buddy, right? So she turns back, why are your teeth so yellow? So he's trying to like make a joke. He's like, well, it's because I eat yellow snow. No, you do not. You don't brush your teeth, grandpa. You need to brush your teeth because they are yellow, yellow, yellow. And then there was a little boy who appeared to be a grandson. Come here, come here. She waves a little boy. Look how yellow grandpa's teeth are. So the little kid like climbs up on the grandpa's lap. He's like poking in the grandpa's mouth. Yeah, they are yellow. Look how yellow they are. And then this girl, she like swings around and she starts kind of looking at the crowd. And you can see everybody just go, do not look at my mouth. <laughs> I do not want you to comment on my mouth. I'm serious and I'm not exaggerating. This went on for five minutes straight. Just yellow, 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 yellow teeth. Finally, it's over. I'm like, oh man, thank you, Jesus. Your mercy is so good. <laughs> then this other girl who was somehow connected to them, I don't know how, she was walking by and the grandpa waves over and pulls out somebody and goes, would you please go get me some ice cream? The little girl that had been the yellow teeth girl, here's that. No, grandpa, you can't have any ice cream. Your teeth are yellow. You need to go to the dentist. No ice cream for you. Started all over again. And by the end of this, the little boy, he comes like going around the fence and goes in front of us and he's singing a song. Grandpa has yellow teeth, yellow teeth, yellow teeth. Grandpa has yellow teeth. Just like circling around us. Oh, it was so funny. I just could not believe it. The problem with people is people. They just do stuff. You're like, oh, that's so embarrassing. Why did you do that to me? Ah, right? We're going to see in this chapter the way that we deal with people who make fun of our yellow teeth or in some other broken way hurt us is a measure of our maturity. It really is. And we'll get to that. And Paul has dealt with this. You read his epistles. He's dealt with people that have done a lot worse things than make fun of his teeth. And he still deals well with them and walks with them. It's a sign of maturity. So look in chapters 20, 21, 22, and you'll see just this interaction of Paul with people. And it's brilliant. So let's jump in. Verse one, Acts 20. After the uproar ceased, this is a big riot in Ephesus over idols and no one making any money anymore on their idols. Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Pater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of, the Thessalon uh, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Age Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. 
But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where, and this is important, they stayed for seven days. All right? So verse one, end of one uproar. Verse three, another uproar. Now, why were people mad at Paul? Preaching the gospel. If people don't get mad at you at some point, you're probably not actually preaching the gospel because the claims of Christianity are either going to push people into faith or push people into a riot. That's what happens, right? So here is a conversation that I clipped out many years ago because I thought it was so good. And it really, to me, demonstrates what our faith is, like what you need to believe. And it's a, it's a conversation between Christopher Hitchens. Anybody heard of Christopher Hitchens? He passed away a couple years ago. Um, he wrote a book called God Is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. So a brilliant atheist mind, uh, a guy that I read just because he was very good at articulating the weaknesses of Christianity, which is something I want to do. I want to know what, what are weaknesses so that I can figure out how to be strong in those things. So he's just really good at that. I always liked him. What's amazing about him is his brother, Peter Hitchens, solid believer in Jesus Christ. And he wrote a book called The Rage Against God, where he really reshaped his brother's thoughts on, hey, wait a second, you're going the wrong direction. Like I would love to be at Christmas when those guys got together. <laughs> It'd be awesome. So anyways, he goes up and he has this interview in Portland with a gal, her name is Marilyn Sewell, and she's a Unitarian minister in Portland. And they have this conversation about faith. And I just have this one little section to read. It's a question that Marilyn Sewell, a Unitarian lady, asks Christopher Hitchens, the atheist. She says this, quote, the religion you cite in your books is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that is that Jesus died for our sins. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Listen to Hitchens' response. Quote, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, you're really not, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. Whoop-dee! <laughs> now that's offensive. Jesus is the Messiah, and by him alone, your sins are saved. There is no other way, there is no other name. That will get people mad at you. And Christopher Hitchens, an atheist, said it right. If you don't believe in that, then you're just playing a game. Don't play a game. So at some point, preaching is gonna be offensive. Paul says it, 1 Corinthians 1. So Paul, sharing those messages gets people mad. So he starts to head off and around him comes this group of seven young men. And most likely, um, they're bringing gifts from each of these cities because Jerusalem was in a bad famine. So they're taking this gift down there. But I think it's more than that. I think they could have just given them all money to Paul. 
I think they want to hang out with Paul. They're like, this dude is something else. I'm gonna go with him. I'm volunteering. I wanna hang out with Paul for a while. You'll know you're a leader by one thing. People wanna follow you. Paul was that kind of leader. He had a magnetic, truth-based charisma about him. And now these seven men leave jobs, leave homes, leave church families, and they join with him on this journey from Greece, quite a ways down. They're gonna boats, walking, hiking, all the way down to Jerusalem, where it's not gonna be pretty. So awesome. So that happens. Seven. On the first day of the week, how long has he been in Troas? Seven days, very important there. You'll see why. When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech, I love how Luke does this, until midnight. I'll be honest with you. If Paul talked till midnight, I would fall asleep. Like, it's a party for me to go to bed past 10, 8, 10 p.m. now. It's like, the older you get, like, no, man, 9.30 sounds really good to me, actually. Good night, I'm going to sleep. So, I, yeah. And then, then I love Luke, he goes, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. That's Luke being tactful, isn't it? It's not, Paul wasn't boring. It was the lamps in the room that were burning up all the oxygen and that made people tired. I love Luke, he's so good. And a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Paul's killing it here. <laughs> Remember, it's a doctor that said the dude's dead. He might know. Took his pulse, whatever they did back 2,000 years ago to see if somebody's dead, you know, lift up the hand, drop it. I don't know what they did. Luke does it, guy's dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him up in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up, and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, he took him on board, we took him on board and went to Mitli. Mytilene, excuse me. And sailing from there, when we, sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. And the next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. And Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul shows up in Troas. He's there for seven days. What day do they all gather together on? First day. Could they have gathered together on Monday? Sure. Tuesday? Sure. Wednesday? Sure. Thursday? Sure. Friday? Sure. Saturday? Totally. But they didn't. What day did they gather together on? Sunday. Okay. Um, if you want to look at the history of the church, it's birth in Jerusalem. Charity and I were in Israel uh, two years ago. To this day, on the Sabbath, 
Saturday, the whole place shuts down. Stores don't open, there's nothing, it's zero. So when the church got birth in Jerusalem and started to grow, on Saturday, they just shut down like everybody else. And then on Sunday, they'd have their big gathering, get everybody together. And what they were remembering by that was Jesus rose again on Sunday. And that became the pattern from that day forward. We gather on Sunday. Very often it was Sunday evening because the slaves and people would actually have to work all day long. So they get together in the evening, read 1 Corinthians 11, have a big meal together and then study the scripture and talk as late as they wanted to. So the pattern from the beginning has been for the church to gather on Sunday, remembering that the reason why we gather is the resurrection of our King. And you can read 1 Corinthians 16 as well. Now, does it matter what day you gather on? No. Colossians 2, 16, right? Don't let anybody judge you on new moons, on festivals, on holy days or on Sabbath days. Choose your day. Or Romans chapter 14, verse four and five, six, right there it says, some esteem one day higher than another day, others esteem all days the same. Be convinced in your own mind because if before God you stand or fall. Well, if you like one day better than another day, good for you. If you don't care, good for you. Because ultimately, Hebrews then says, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He fulfilled the Sabbath for us. And when we enter into the body of Christ, it's fulfilled on our behalf, okay? So whatever day you want, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, every day, doesn't matter. But the church historically has chosen to worship on Sunday, remembering the resurrection. And what they did there was, they broke bread. I like that. We would call it a potluck today. I don't call it potlucks because pot has a bad connotation to it. And I never like luck when I'm eating somebody else's food. So it's like, I don't even use that word. They had a meal together. They have a meal. They would talk. There's something about eating with somebody that I think breaks down some barriers. Like if you want to get to know a couple, what's the first thing you do? Come over for a meal. Right, because it's like everybody has to eat. And in eating, you get something to talk about. Oh, I like this food. Or, you know, if you don't like it, you got to act like you like it. Like there's all those good things that have to happen. And the gospels, one guy said the gospels are this. It's Jesus having meals with all the wrong people. I love that. It's hospitality. So the church was given to this kind of hospitality. We come together, we have a meal, we talk about Jesus, we encourage each other. And as they're doing that, man, it probably Eutychus had worked a full shift that day. 12 hours was the full shift from 6 a.m. to 6 at night. Gets there, eats a giant meal because he's hungry, sits down, it's hot. Paul goes on and on and on. Can you blame him? I can't blame him. It's hard sometimes if you work a whole day to come to a Wednesday night. It's hard. I get that, man. You're tired. I get it. No doubt about it. And we've had some close calls. We've never had anybody die here. <laughs> but we did have, who was at the eight o'clock service with, uh, yeah, we got one, two. Yeah, the eight o'clock service with Kermit. Like that was the scariest thing I've experienced so far. That was just back in January. Um, if you weren't there, uh, I'm just there going to church because James Dennis was teaching. So I'm sitting down, praise had just ended. And I'm, I'm got my Bible and uh, one of the doorkeepers ran up to me, I was upstairs because it's a little bit full, upstairs, grabs me, Matt, Matt, come here, come here. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So I thought, oh, they need Bible help. 
because that's what I do. I'll help with the Bible. So I follow him. I kind of lose him. I'm like, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And then I see him in the sanctuary. I'm like, kind of creep in there. And I go in there. He's like, come here, come here. And there's this guy who is just slumped over and he's turned white. And they're like, there's no pulse on him. We cannot get a pulse on him. And I'm like, I remember holding my Bible thinking, do I just put the Bible on him? Like, <laughs> I, I'm ill-equipped for this right here. So we stopped the service and prayed for him and this nurse named Faye who just jumped into action and started CPR on him. And it, was, it reminds me, and I don't wanna make light of this, but it was like a cartoon almost because it was like he went from white to colored face to open his eyes and, and he just clicked around and goes, what's going on? Dude, you almost died. That's what's going on. <laughs> what is going on with you? Like, I mean, it was insane. So we haven't lost anybody. But I think we came like this close in January. Like just scary, scary. Here's what I do to stay awake. And I listen to a lot of messages during the week. I take notes. Taking notes does two things. It helps your memory and it keeps you engaged. That's what it does. And they have found, science has found this, that the actual forming, like taking a pencil and forming the letter makes the memory go deeper in your mind than just pushing something on a keyboard or on a smartphone. That when you form a letter, what happens is you're engaging a lot more of your brain, the, the mechanics of actually the, the movement, you know, that movement of making the letter. And the more you engage in your mind in a memory, the deeper that memory goes. So an accident, like people say, man, I remember this accident like yesterday. You know why? Because your whole mind was engaged in that moment. Like I saw bolts flying out in slow motion. And you know, why? Because your mind was deeply engaged in that moment. So I just take notes. I take, I'm a, you know, you can look at my Bible. And this is a newer Bible. Like in books that I've studied, it's just, I just, I'm writing in my Bible. I, it, it helps me remember and keeps me engaged. So that's, that's what I do, right? And then, after he heals him, what does he go do? Verse 11, midnight snack. They're biblical. If you wanna be a good Christian, you have to follow Acts 20, verse 11. You go back in, you have a midnight snack, and then he talks until 6 a.m. How brilliant. Like there's something beautiful about this to me. Paul spends himself on these people. Because if you keep reading, verse 13, he, he sends everybody else on a ship and he walks 20 miles that day, zero sleep. He knew that was coming. He'd arranged it beforehand. He knew I'm gonna get done with this, this group of people and then I'm gonna walk 20 miles to my next location. But these people are so worth it in my heart that I'm not gonna go home and go to sleep. I'm gonna spend myself on these people. Like Paul's a brilliant brilliant man like that. Like, I don't know how he did it. I'd be a walking zombie. Why did he walk? Why didn't he take the ship and take a nap? Maybe he got seasick. I don't know. Maybe he wanted to pray. I don't know. Maybe he wanted to see the countryside. Maybe he needed a little alone time. I don't know. But he walks after staying up all night, 20 miles. Super special guy. Maybe he was gifted that way. There have been gifted men. You want to read about a really gifted man? Read about Julius Caesar. That guy could do amazing things. Did you know this? He could write two letters at the same time to two different people. Dear Brutus, dear Flavius, just at the same time, and then send them out. Like he, he's a pretty special dude. 
I think Paul is kind of in that category. I can stay up all night, walk all day the next night, just like nothing at all. So he does that. And now we come to the very heart of chapter 20, which is this message he gives to the leaders of the church at Ephesus. Now from Miletus, verse 17, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. The first thing Paul says to these guys, you know how I lived. Not you know what I told you, you know how I lived. Much more important than the words we say is the life we actually live. Much more important. And there was a time like in my faith where I was maybe a little bit too uh, dogmatic on things. And uh, I had this beef with, of all people, Rick Warren. Kind of cause I thought, oh, you know, his purpose-driven church, I don't know about that purpose-driven life, whatever about that. And I actually read the book, I was like, oh, I'm actually impressed by this. It was more like the press about him than him. And I started reading about him. And he amazes me. He has never taken a salary from his church. He had a little bit in the beginning. When his book sold, he paid back every cent with interest that the church had ever paid him. Doesn't take a salary to this day. He drives a 1998 Ford Ranger to this day. A 20-year-old truck. Why? Doesn't matter to him. And I think, you know what? That is a lifestyle that maybe these other big church people that are buying gold-plated jets might look at and say, well, he's pretty big name too. He's a pretty important guy. And he's living a life that is exemplary to those that are looking in from the outside. Paul says, you watched me. You watched me. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. If you ever have people that say, the Bible does not teach that Jesus is God, Here's a go-to verse. Because what did he just say right there? To care for the church of God, which he obtained 
with his own blood. Whose blood purchased the church? Jesus. How did Paul refer to Jesus in this text? As God, yep. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is the heart of the chapter. Paul grabs these guys he had spent years with, has one last lecture to them. And this is what he does. Number one, verses 18 through 21, he looks at the past. And first he says this, I serve with humility. If you say that you're humble, does that ruin it? <laughs> I'm humble and proud of it. <laughs> Humility is huge though. It's one of the reasons I don't like titles. Like people call me Pastor Matt, I don't mind that. You know, it's fine with me. But I just prefer Matt. I'm just Matt, That's, you know? Yeah, okay, I happen to have a job. But if I was an engineer, would people be like, Engineer Matt? <laughs> no, <laughs> they just say Matt, right? I get it, There's, there, and I have no problem with Pastor Matt, but it doesn't matter to me, right? I like one little kid who said this, I know you, <laughs> a story he's like, I know you. I'm like, you do? Yeah, you're Master Pat. <laughs> okay, I'm Master Pat. <laughs> it's a little dyslexic there, bud. They can help you with that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't like that because I'm just part of the family. I happen to have this position to encourage and to exhort and to teach. I would do this and I did it before I ever had a, a title. I just love what I get to do. I'm gonna do it whether I have the title or I don't have the title. I'm gonna teach God's word, period. And so I just feel like I'm part of us and man, I wanna be humble in my position. So humility, number two, with tears. And he, does, he says it actually twice. Man, I ministered with tears, verse 31 as well. Paul was a guy who engaged his emotions with people. When's the last time you cried over the brokenness of somebody? When's the last time you've driven down the roads of Grant's Pass and seen somebody who's been really broken by this world and your heart just sank? I hope that happens to us all the time. I was driving to the 8.30 service on Sunday and um, going across the Parkway Bridge and there was this young, he looked like he was in his 30s or so, this young man, he's walking and he has his shirt like a, a tank top, but he was like turned inside out like girls kind of do. It almost looks like a bikini. I'm like, what in the world is that guy wearing? Get closer, I'm like, oh, it's a tank top. And he's dancing like this kind of like, ooh, 
just dancing along, you know, almost falling into the river a couple times. And, and I kind of slowed down just to like, are you okay, buddy? And uh, he just looks at me and just takes off his shirt then and keeps dancing along. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry because I know behind that man is a mom somewhere whose heart is breaking for her son. And there might be some kids that he's 30, he probably has some kids somewhere. They're not gonna grow up without a dad. My heart just sunk and broke because that's what's supposed to happen to us. God save us from a tearless ministry. If we're not shedding tears, then I don't think we have Jesus's heart because Jesus goes to Jerusalem, the city that's gonna crucify him, and he wept over that city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, wept over it. Our hearts should be breaking all the time. Tears, tons and tons of tears. So humility, tears. And then verse 20, he says it again in verse 27, I told you the truth. I told you the truth. I didn't shy away from sharing something from you that you might be offended by. That's why there are so many riots. I was always telling you the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. A pastor must never, ever fear topics. Sin, hell, the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God that's coming, we must never fear that. He even says, I love this, I shared with you the gospel of faith and of repentance. We love faith, don't we? We have all these slogans for faith. Keep the faith. Faith, family, football. You gotta have faith. We don't have any of those for repentance, do we? You gotta have repentance, right? Repent. Remorse, regret. Why? Because repentance means you're wrong. Repentance needs to be taught. Because if you're wrong, you need to change. And somebody needs to tell you the truth. You're wrong and you need to change. So that's what he does. And then verse 27, he says, I, I, I gave you the whole, all of God's truth. You could say this would be expository teaching of scripture. Like there's something healthy about just choosing a book and saying, I'm gonna start the beginning of this book and I'm gonna get to the end of it because it forces you then to teach on things that you might normally wanna skip over. To me, expository teaching, it's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. Do you know what they paint the Golden, the Golden Gate Bridge all the time? Because by the time they finish it, they gotta start right over again. And there are 6,000 rivets in the Golden Gate Bridge. And if salt gets into those rivets, guess what happens to them? They're gone. They corrode. And so if they don't continually just paint, 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 if they stop that, one day the Golden Gate Bridge collapses. To me, that's expository preaching. And you may not know you need it. You may not think, hey, you may think you're okay. Oh, but a little bit of salt gets in there and starts to corrode you. You need that to be painted over and every single day, if you would, just constantly recoded by God's word to protect you, to protect me. So Paul says, that's what I've been doing. I've been doing that, All right? So the past, then the present, he catches them up, verses 20 through, 22 through 27. Here's my plan, here's what I'm doing. We looked at this on Sunday, right? I'm headed to Jerusalem. They're like, that's kill central, dude. Why are you going there? 
That's like going to Iran today wearing an I Heart Jesus shirt, sharing the gospel while standing on the Koran. What's gonna happen to you? Yeah, you're gonna be killed. And they're like, what are you doing, right? So you kind of follow that through. Like, was it God's plan for Paul to do that? Or was it Paul's goof up? And man, it just divides theologians. Depends on what, the way you see things. I think Paul is being told not to go there. And he went, no, anyway, God never said you can't go there. God was just saying, it's not the best choice. And Paul did it. And the rest is history. God comes to him. Jesus comes to him. Uh, Acts 23, 11, I'm still with you. I love that. I'm still with you. You may not have gone the direction that I wanted you to, but I'm still with you. And I love you and I'll stand by you and I'll get you to Rome. I'll get you to your heart's desire. So that's the present. Then he goes prophetic. He looks down the tunnel of time at churches and he says, this is what's gonna come for you. And it's the same thing that comes for you and me as well. And he says, here's what's coming for you. Elders, and he's talking to the leaders of this church. And he calls these elders overseers. It's plural elders and they're overseeing the church. I'm convinced church government is a group of elders that get together who passionately love Jesus and his kingdom and together in unity, they make the decisions about the direction of this local body of believers. So that's what we do here. And there have been many times I have lost decisions uh, on things at church. There have been people that I really wanted to hire and we did not hire them. And the elders have always come back to me and apologized and told me that I was right. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I don't want it that way. I want the broadness and the, the, the many waters that Jesus chooses to speak through of the, the body of Christ. And I love the elders that we have right now. They're men that love Jesus, committed to his kingdom, love Edgewater, tears, passion, everything. So he's talking to this group of people and he begins to tell them, hey, prophetically look out. So first of all, elder, and this could go for all of us. Verse 28, pay, pay careful attention to yourselves. Make sure you're healthy. Because if you got un get unhealthy, if a leader gets taken out in a church, oh man, it's devastating. You take care of you. You better be doing well. You gotta make sure you're healthy. Would you go to a dentist whose teeth look like a piano? No, because if he tells you to floss, you're like, dude, I'm not flossing, you don't, right? It's like that. Uh, an elder has to be paying attention to his own walk. Am I reading scripture? Am I praying? Am I involved in the community the way that I want to see the church involved in the community? Am I crying over the broken and the lost? Because if I'm not doing those things, then I don't have any right. I, that doesn't mean elders have to be involved in everything. There are lanes we run in in involvement, but we should be doing something in all those things. And then we can say, come with me, do this with me. So first, take heed to yourself and then to the flock. And then he starts to warn. Look out for wolves. What do you do to a wolf in a church? Shoot them. That's what you do to a wolf in church. Because what do wolves eat? It says it right here. 
Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You can tell a wolf because there's a bunch of people getting hurt by him or her. And so we have asked people, you can't come here anymore. We just dealt with one a couple months ago. It seemed like there was maybe some impropriety between them and somebody else. And so we tried to, tried to track it down. And then the, the individual just said, I'm out. I'm not going to church anymore. Okay. So, all right. That's out of our jurisdiction now. If you're with us, then we'll talk with you and try to get to the bottom of it and try to have restoration. I mean, I, I tell a wolf all the time, hey, the, the wolf will lay down with a lamb. You can change. This is not the end of it but you gotta repent and put your faith in Jesus. That's the way things change. So that's our job, man. We, get, we have to hunt wolves and we will. And so if you were here at the eight, this service, I actually, uh, I did this message at the 8.30 and then there was thunder and lightning here, so I didn't get to it, but I talked about this in depth. So we'll do. We'll take care of this. If you're a young man who is preying on women here, we'll get you. So I told them at the 8.30, I'll hunt you down. Everyone laughed. I said, okay, then fine. Chad Hansen will hunt you down. <laughs> All right? And I you're not afraid of me. I don't care. Chad will get you. <laughs> I'll, we'll print out your picture and we'll put it everywhere up, man. I, we'll, we'll tell people. Look out. Praying. Because it's our job as elders to protect from wolves. But then there's the second group. And from among your own selves, from inside the church, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. I just say wolves and whack jobs. And the whack jobs come from inside the church and they've got the lingo down. Praise the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. But the problem with the whack job is this. What do they do? They want to draw away the disciples after themselves. Their whole goal is, I want people to follow me. It's an ego thing. So they twist scripture and they act like they're really inventive. But the whole goal of a whack job is I want people after me. And we've had them throughout history from Jonestown to modern day whack jobs. And I'll say this, here's how you know it's super, super simple. Just because something grows does not mean it's from God. Cancer grows, is that from God? It's from the curse. Right? Just because something grows does not mean it's from Just because a bunch of people are going there, you have to go there and this is what you have to listen for. If Jesus is not that person's hero, turn the volume to zero. Jesus should be their hero. You should be hearing about Jesus as the source. And if that does not happen, they're twisting scripture and they're trying to get you impressed with themselves. So look out for wolves. Look out for whack jobs. Turn to zero, and then he just says this. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Paul knows I, I've done everything I can do here. There's a point in discipleship. There's a point in parenting. As a mom or dad, you have to say, I've done everything I can do for you. I commend you to God now. And that is a legitimate place to come. You need to now make your decisions. It's as a parent, my hope is this, that I have stacked enough kindling around your soul that God's spirit can ignite that and transform you. And if I've done that right, then I just say, I commend you. I commend you to God and to his grace and trust him in that space. And that's what Paul says to these guys, I commend you.
May God ignite you. And then lastly, he gets real personal. And verses 33 through 35, I'll just summarize it like this. Paul is a giver, Paul is a worker, and Paul is a helper. If you want a resume for a great husband for your daughters, find someone who is a giver, a worker, and a helper. Those are huge to me. You want a great resume for a pastor of a church? Is he a giver? Is he a worker? Is he a helper? To me, those are huge, huge things. I fear stingy, lazy men. I fear them. I want giving, working, helping people. And if I'm lazy and stingy, then I repent and say, God, change me and do a giving, working helper. That's what the apostle Paul was. And he says this, he says, verse 35, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I'll say this. The mark of maturity is how you and I help the weak. And this could be financial, no doubt, but it's always more than that. Like, if the church stops being the place where weak people find help, then we no longer have a mission. And the way that we help the weak and how we help the weak to me is the barometer of your spiritual maturity. Why do you say that? Let me read Galatians 6 to you. Listen to what it says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, what's a transgression? Bad, bad stuff. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one test his own work. That text just said very simply, simply, people are transgressing. You that are truly spiritual, restore them, walk with them, help them. If anybody is overburdened and being broken by this world, you that are strong, come alongside them and help them. And so I said to the 8.30 service, the one service I did get to preach this message, I said, I fear a pretty church. Because when you get too pretty, what it means is this, broken people don't think they can help there and they stop coming. And that's a sign that the mature, strong believers are no longer engaging the weak in the way that we're supposed to engage the weak. And it's really the death nail to a church. And I love on a Sunday seeing the crazy mixed multitude that calls Edgewater home. Broken people, good people, bad people, the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> Praise God. It's supposed to look like that. Because you know what? I'm still broken in ways. I'm not perfect. I'm still working through, yeah, I've got overcome some stuff, but by no means am I there yet. I love Billy Graham. Like the last interview with Billy Graham, like 
couple years before he died, they asked him, hey, how's your relation with Jesus? Oh, I just wanna grow. I love that. I'm like, dude, you've been following Jesus for like 500 years. And you're like, I still wanna grow. Like that's the commitment we're supposed to have. I still have places to go. I still need to learn of him. I still, ah, that's it, right? That's it. So like, yes, we're supposed to help the weak and we're supposed to grow. I think the only problem is, is a person that's happy where they're at, right? We should have people that are, that are swimming in the kiddie pool and we should have people that are putting on scuba gear, right? The only bad thing is someone who has been here for 20 years or been a Christian for 50 years and they're doing cannonballs into the kiddie pool. Bro, grow, grow so that you can become someone that can help the weak and walk with them and help them through brokenness because that's the way it's supposed to be. That's spiritual maturity. Giver, worker, helper, brilliant. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Have you ever been here when Billy Graham Palouse is here? And I'll say, hey, can I pray for you? Guess what he does? Gets immediately down on his knees because of this verse right here. Puts up his hands and I always feel awkward. I'm like, oh, I should be on my knees too, I think. And they were all weeping. The part, and there was much weeping on the part of them all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Paul loved people and he was loved by people. I sometimes think of Paul like this harsh intellectual who's like gonna be logically with people. He's very, very emotional. Our hearts should never get bigger than our heads. Because if your head gets bigger than your heart, you become unstable and you fall over. I constantly pray, God, make my heart bigger. I don't need a bigger head. I need a bigger heart. Break me with what breaks you. Grow my heart. That's what I need to be grown. And that's what Paul has right here. Giant, giant heart. And so we get to come to the table where you get your heart to grow. So Jesus, as we have the elements passed out to us, and as we hold these elements, may we be reminded of your heart that you so love the world that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have age-abiding life. That you gave the unspeakable gift that if you spared not your only son but delivered him up on our behalf, how shall you not with him give us all good things? So grow our hearts tonight, Lord, we pray.